Welcome to Sentient Planet. This is the last place on the planet where we have a substantial amount of primeval inland temperate rainforest left. There's large tracts of old growth rainforest that have not yet been logged. And these caribou, there can be a future for them if we choose to change our, you know, how we're behaving and interacting with the landscape and with them. So this isn't just a story, a past tense story. The conclusion for this has yet to be written. Hi, I'm Susan Woodward. We return to the land in this episode to learn about a gentle, beautiful, more-than-human animal who hides out in a unique forest and who most people don't even know exists. My guest today is trying to change that. He's David Moskowitz, the widely published photographer, wildlife biologist, conservationist, outdoors educator, mountaineer, writer, filmmaker, well, to quote one of his friends, David is a remarkable person who has self-actualized in a way that is very exceptional indeed. I'm delighted to have this renowned nature lover and adventurer on the show. David's here to educate us about another rare sentient being, the mountain caribou, who have adapted to survive in the largest remaining inland temperate rainforest in the world. It's located in British Columbia. David spent three years up there in Canada, tracking and documenting these caribou. They're different to the Arctic caribou most of us are familiar with. The results are a book, Caribou Rainforest, From Heartbreak to Hope, and a documentary film, Last Stand, The Vanishing Caribou Rainforest. I urge you to pick up both of them. So here's David to help us understand who these elusive animals are, why their herds are disappearing from North America right before our eyes, and how competing old-growth timber harvesting can be brought to heel before it's too late. David Moskowitz, welcome to Sentient Planet. Good to be with you. Hey, on your website, you describe yourself as someone who works in the field of photography, wildlife biology, and education. But a friend of yours describes you to me as an author, photographer, and wildlife tracker. Um, so I just have to say that the second description is certainly more intriguing. Wildlife tracking, that's certainly not a desk job. So David, exactly what do you spend most of your time doing? Well, I wear a lot of different hats for uh, the work I do, and they all revolve around, yes, the outdoors, but wildlife, wildlife conservation, uh, and kind of outdoor-related uh, activities, including documentary photography work, wildlife biology, like consulting work, and then photography. And as far as wildlife tracking goes, my area of expertise as a wildlife biologist has to do with non-invasive research methods for wildlife and mostly carnivores. And that has to do with tracks and signs that animals leave on the landscape and how to interpret them in order to understand the behaviors of wildlife or to find them for whatever purpose, either photographing them or research. Yeah, so I'm doing that work as a photographer, as a biologist, uh, training others to uh, understand wildlife and be able to track them, that sort of stuff. 
Uh, it sounds like a fantastic line of work. So what do you experience? Well, let me back up. What is it that calls you to do this kind of work? And what do you experience when you're out there? Just what are some of your internal experiences, I guess? Well, I've loved, like, since I was a teenager and fell in love with the outdoors and realized that human choices were imperiling the lives of many other creatures on this planet. I think my strong desire to adventure in the outdoors and learn about the natural world and wildlife in particular has been paired with kind of a, a mission to support conservation efforts and like a reciprocal relationship between humans and the natural world. And so that's kind of what's driving me. And then I also just, I mean, I don't like being cooped up. So I've been working my whole adult life to figure out how to have a career that keeps me outdoors as much as possible. And uh, I have got a real wide variety of experiences that, you know, my work might have me on skis one day trying to track down wolverines and uh, out in the field training biologists on how to interpret the tracks and signs of animals under an interstate bridge. Uh, another day, it really varies. Well, your contributions to wildlife study and photography and writing and now filmmaking, they're so extensive that I felt like I needed to choose one main thing to focus on in this interview. Every species out there of the millions on the planet has a fascinating story to tell. You know this better than most. So if it's okay with you, can we mostly talk about the mountain caribou that these days inhabit British Columbia, Canada? Of course, they're the subject of your book, Caribou Rainforest. Can you share a little bit of the story of who these animals are and where and how they live? Yeah, absolutely. Mountain caribou are a very discreet ecotype of caribou. So caribou you can find all over the Northern Hemisphere, but there's a very small population of them that has a very unique relationship with the inland temperate rainforest of the Pacific Northwest. And this rainforest itself is actually a globally unique terrestrial ecosystem, one of the most endangered ecosystem types on the planet. And these caribou have co-evolved with this very special rainforest and created a whole different way of surviving and living in this landscape that caribou nowhere else on the planet exhibit. So their story is really the story of this rainforest and also the story of how wildlife and the natural world really diversifies you know, the variety of landscapes and ecosystems just helps generate this tremendous diversity of life on the planet. And unfortunately, it's also the story of how contemporary human cultures, you know, industrial civilization has really taken its toll on species that are specialized, that are uniquely adapted to specific places on the planet. So their story is similar to, say, the story of polar bears in the Arctic uh, or pronghorn antelope in the Great Plains, where their survival is connected to a very unique ecosystem. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into some of that detail about what is happening to the habitat that they live in and that is so essential to their survival a little bit later on. Um, so they're not the Arctic caribou that many of us are more familiar with. They, are they genetically different as well to that animal? Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. So um, they're subspecies of caribou. They're generally lumped with woodland caribou. So most folks think about barren ground caribou, which are the ones that run around in the Arctic and woodland caribou that people think about and across like the vast boreal forests of, you know, Siberia and Norway, Scandinavia and Canada and, you know, the boreal part of Alaska. But within that 
woodland caribou type, the mountain caribou are even more specific, and they are uh, ecotype, which means they're behaviorally and genetically unique uh, in their population. And what makes them so unique is again how they live in this very distinctive ecosystem, and and that life cycle, that lifestyle involves actually a double migration every year. This is, I think, perhaps the most fascinating part of their life, where we often think about migration as, say, in the summer, the animals go to the north, and then in the winter, they come back to the south, which may be the case with many birds, uh, or actually some migratory herds of caribou. But mountain caribou actually migrate not north to south, but up and down the mountainside. So they live in this very mountainous region, and they spend the winters counterintuitively at the tops of these mountains right around treeline. So they uh, go up there and spend all winter basically hiding out from predators and any of their competitors feeding off of lichens in the tops of these trees that are covered with tons and tons of snow. And then in the spring, when the snow's melting, they go all the way down to the valley bottom, which is thousands of feet of elevation, and historically fed off of lichens that got blown out of the tops of these old growth forests that Mm. they lived in. And then in the summertime, they would go all the way back up to the mountaintops and spend the summer feeding in uh, alpine meadows and, again, a place where there's not a ton of predators or competitors. And then in the fall, when the ground freezes up, but before the snowfall has really built up, they go back down to the valley bottoms and feed on lichens and shrubs and such there, waiting for the snowpack in the mountains to build up again, in which time they go all the way back up to the mountaintops. So they do this double migration every year, which is totally built around this unique ecosystem, which has very dense forests and very steep topography that makes these very different uh, environments in close proximity in terms of distance, but far apart in terms of elevation. Are they essentially then following the availability of lichens as food? Uh, yeah, so lichens as a part of the, as food is a very important part of this lifestyle. And then again, um, avoidance of predators is a key part of it. So they will go to places that there aren't many predators and that's how they survive. So winter up in the high mountains, not very many predators. Uh, Summer up in these places as well, because there's not a ton of um, alternative prey, they do quite well. And then the low elevations, they would stick to these old growth forests where And many people, maybe if they've traveled in a temperate rainforest in, say, coastal BC or Washington might experience this. When you go into these old forests, there's actually not a lot of large animals that live there. Deer and moose and elk typically prefer edge habitats, so early successional forests or grasslands and things like that. So when they get into these old growth forests, uh, they don't have many predators and they don't have much competition. The fact that they can survive off of lichen allows them to live in places where other animals can't make a living. It sounds like a really brilliant and quite unique form of adaptation. Exactly. And it, you know, it evolved over the past 10 or 15,000 years. This whole ecosystem sprung up after the retreat of the ice at the end of the last ice age. And during that time, caribou that were living there just adapted to this evolving inland rainforest that was being created literally right underneath them and around them. That's brilliant. When I watched your film, Last Stand, about these amazing animals, it captures, it seems to capture when you see mountain caribou, perhaps for the first time. Can you describe that moment for us? What was it like for you? Well, it was 
I mean, this gets to my love of outdoor adventure and like learning by doing and just being in relationship with animals in the world around me because I had spent weeks literally trying to just track down one of these animals that, you know, as I just mentioned, they make their living by living in places that's hard to get to and kind of disappearing into the landscape. And so they don't want to be uh, found. <laughs> they don't want to be found. And then to on top of that, they're endangered, which means there's very few of them left. And so it was just on a personal note, very thrilling to like have tons and tons of field work pay off to get a minute and a half glimpse of, uh, of a caribou for the first time in, in its habitat. So you said all that tracking took you a few weeks? Yeah. My interest in mountain caribou started when I had about a month of free time because I had another expedition cancel. And I decided to go try to track down some mountain caribou to photograph them, learn a little bit more about them because I was intrigued. You know, I'd never actually seen one of these animals, even though I lived in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I was and, wondering uh, how you even heard about their existence. Yeah, you know, so I, I had touched on their lives a little bit in two previous projects, but hadn't really dove in very deeply. And so I just went up and uh, did some research and just went up to try to find some of these animals. And it turned into a total adventure to try to track them down. Like just trying to figure out how to get into places where they live can be quite challenging, let alone finding them. And then in the process, I really started unpacking just the horrendous story that's unfolding up there in terms of the continued destruction of their habitat yeah. uh, through primarily through logging that's going on uh, in British Columbia. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. You know, in the film, I saw one of those first photos that you took of this this animal, this non-human animal, and my heart skipped a beat. I mean, these are gorgeous, majestic creatures. I guess you've been seeing them more often now. So I'm still trying to get a sense of what's it like to encounter such a majestic creature up close like that? Yeah, well, you know, I think humans are hardwired to have a special relationship with other large animals, large mammals in particular, you know. Mm. These are species that we co-evolved with. There's still people, uh, you know, that depend on these large animals for their survival today. There's kind of this unbroken history of interaction between people and big game that makes those encounters very powerful, you know, either as inspiration or like for survival or for fear. You know, we have a lot of fear about large animals. Sure. We've been not just on the top of the food chain always, but sometimes in the <laughs> middle of it or at the bottom of it. Seems so fair. <laughs> we just have a very visceral relationship with these animals. So it's, it definitely helps. I think for me and many other people, you tap into a more primal part of what it means to be a human hmm. by being in landscapes with other large animals. Yeah. Like the caribou. So I'm getting a sense of them as being quite gentle beings. They avoid confrontations. They need quiet, undisturbed habitat. 
But of course, that's not what's happening for them. What is threatening their survival? Let's get into that. So industrial civilization, basically settler colonialism, when European Americans primarily invaded uh, the Pacific Northwest and the inland temperate rainforest, the economies they created basically came into conflict with caribou every step of the way. Like each uh, part of their life cycle, uh, there's conflicts between what humans want from the landscape and what caribou need, uh, which is, by the way, a very different relationship than what the indigenous people of these same places have with Mm -hmm. caribou, which is, you know, one of reciprocity. They've been living together, caring for each other for thousands of years. As to the problem, this industrial civilization, the biggest issue today really is uh, logging. Yeah, And so these old growth forests were tremendously valuable trees. Uh, and so uh, logging, you know, has commenced kind of working its way north, starting in the south ecosystem, the United States, and now going full force in the north end of the ecosystem, just the removal of uh, their habitat. The logging doesn't kill the caribou directly, but what happens is by you cut down these forests and it's kind of like just breaking open the walls of a fortress, right? So these old forests protected the caribou from competing uh, animals like uh, moose, elk, and deer, mm-hmm. and most importantly, the predators that come with those other species. So moose, elk, and deer learned to, they evolved to live with high rates of predation. So they reproduce more quickly, they have very strong, fast responses to predators on the landscape. And caribou, as we mentioned, their survival strategy was avoidance. So they learned to live in places that there weren't very many predators. So they survive by avoiding as opposed to survive by living in close proximity with. So once you break down the walls to that fortress and you let the competing animals show up and the predators show up, uh, they're just not well suited to survive in that environment. So their mortality rates go up very quickly. So how many of these incredible animals are left? Uh, gosh, the last census I saw was about 1,100 of them spread out across a ecosystem that's a little bit smaller than uh, the main island of Britain, you know, Great Britain. <laughs> so it's a huge area and uh, very few animals split into smaller subpopulations, each one of which you know, is at high risk of going extinct by itself. And before the industrialization that you're talking about and the chopping down of old growth forest, which it's just so unbelievable to me that we're still doing that in 2022. Uh, We know better prior to all of that mess that we made. How many of those animals do you think they were when their habitat was not just this last remaining remnant? You know, nobody knows for sure how many animals there used to be, but some kind of historical anecdotes that might speak to that. Uh, one is that there was market hunters that would go out and hunt caribou to feed mining camps. When industrialization and colonialization started, they were plentiful enough that literally they were being hunted to sell to miners for food. And then another way to think about it is actually a uh, traditional ecological knowledge from some of the local indigenous peoples from this landscape, and in particular, Chief Roland Wilson of the West Moberly Deniza quotes his elders when he says that they remember a time uh, when caribou were like, quote, bugs on the landscape. Wow. So you'd go up in the mountains and they would just be all over the right time in the right place. 
And his people said that they could always count on getting a caribou. If other you know, food sources failed, they could go to the mountains and it maybe wasn't the easiest place to get food, but they knew that they could depend on, on the caribou to feed them. Mm, maybe a little bit like the bison herds of old on the plains. Yeah, you know, so it, in a sense, yeah, this was a, you know, a staple food for these people for generation after generation. Uh, at this point, that particular First Nation, the West Moberly and their neighbors, the Soto, unilaterally stopped hunting caribou for food because they could see that their population was declining. So they have lost their ability to uh, be in relationship with those animals in that way because of colonization and you know the destruction of the habitat for them. Right. So things have changed for them. This is an animal they could feed themselves with to the point now where uh, they're on the brink of disappearing. And which indigenous peoples are you referring to there? Uh, that in particular is at the very north end of the, the region, the West Moberly, Daniza, and the Soto First Nations. But, you know, I um, heard stories from the Sinaiax people or the uh, Arrow Lakes Band, which is a part of the Colville Confederated Tribes. And they had similar stories about caribou being a food source for them all the way down here into Washington State and every tribe and First Nation in between, which is probably several dozen groups. Can you share with us, David, the story of the last mountain caribou in the lower 48? Uh, yeah, well, our last caribou here in the United States in the lower 48, uh, the last mountain caribou, they were actually removed from the landscape just right around when my book was published. Mm. So when I started working on this project, the herd was down to about 30 animals. That was in a transborder herd that would go back and forth across the border between British Columbia, Washington, Idaho. I watched over the course of several years that population dwindle. The Canadian and U.S. governments really failed to do anything other than think about what they could do about it until it got to the point where they were down to just six or seven animals. Mm. And the province of B.C. actually removed all of the females and put them into another herd up north, just basically gave up on that um, last herd being able to survive on its own and figuring that Perhaps those uh, animals might have a better chance of surviving up north. Do we know if they integrated successfully? Uh, I'm not privy. I don't know exactly what happened to those specific individual animals. That herd that they were introduced into is doing better than many of the other herds. Theoretically, British Columbia and the U.S. government is still committed to a, the eventual re-establishment of mountain caribou populations along the border there, but. At this point, it's a little bit of a pipe dream because there's so few animals. It's not really clear where more caribou would come from to reintroduce to that area, mm. which was, by the way, devastating. The conservation efforts here in the United States were in large part led by the uh, Kootenai tribe of Idaho, Kalispell tribe of Washington. They were doing everything they possibly could to keep these animals alive, keep a population in their traditional territory. And so when those last animals were moved, this was something that they could see coming, but that they were warning of for a long time, really thwarted their hopes to keep these animals alive on, in their traditional territory. Oh, that must have been devastating for them. So they took the females, put them with another herd, and then what was the eventual outcome for the male? They just... You know, just, yeah, they figured an older bull, as far as population goes, that animal wasn't contributing a ton to 
to the, the whole process and, and like uh, stress of moving it, like to put that animal through that rather than just let it live the rest of its life out where it existed, they felt like was better, all things being equal. Yeah. Really, from a biological perspective, when you look at saving a species, especially with ungulates, the limiting factor is reproductive females. You know, as the biology works, often one male will breed with multiple females. So you don't need a ton of males for the population to persist. Mm, it just sounds like a sad, um, a sad ending for, you know, and a lonely ending for what is a herd animal, though. Oh, yeah, that whole story is just tragic, being out on the landscape. And even when there's just 15 or 20 of these animals left, here's an animal that's used to surviving in much larger groups, you know, and, and just feeling like, wow, they're just kind of these, like, orphans just left out on the landscape. And I traveled on caribou trails in these mountains that weave through the rainforest and the subalpine forest. You realize for generations, these were beaten into the landscape by caribou. And now the caribou are gone. Yeah. There's just a couple of them left. And just how odd that must feel for both the caribou and for the landscape. Just seems like it's yet another very sad example of a, a major species um, high up on the food chain, big mammal going extinct on our watch. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, one of the things that I was very inspired about with this story is that actually this ecosystem, this is the last place on the planet where we have a substantial amount of primeval inland temperate rainforest left. There's large tracts of old growth rainforests that have not yet been logged. A lot of it's slated to be logged in the next couple of decades, but there's still a lot to be done. And these caribou, there can be a future for them if we choose to change our, you know, how we're behaving and interacting with the landscape and with them. So this isn't just a story, a past tense story. The conclusion for this has yet to be written. And so that's one of the reasons I felt so passionate about um, working on it. Right. So because as long as there are caribou and as long as there is a remnant of inland temperate rainforest, there are choices that can be made that could enhance both. How much of it is left and how much of it is protected? Another question that's very hard to answer. <laughs> the province of British Columbia is notorious for its very, let's say, creative accounting for forest old growth forest in particular, where I, you know, I did a bunch of reporting on how they'll call something old growth and then you go out and look at it. It's been logged recently or it's a young forest. The numbers that you get from the province, which are actually, they delegated that management to private industry, uh, which probably speaks to why they have issues there. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say the majority of the highly productive old growth forest has been logged, but there are still large forests that uh, remain to be protected. Lots of 
mid-elevation forests that have some level of protection. Now, they've done pretty well at protecting the highest elevation forests, which have the least economic value. But the rubber, where the rubber really meets the road is the very valuable, low-elevation, very productive forests is, is still landscapes that the province of British Columbia doesn't want to protect. They're basically in bed with the timber industry up there and uh, are really working very hard to continue liquidating those forests. And actually, it's making the news up there on a regular basis. I don't know how much gets reported out here in the United States, but there's blockades going on up there. There's uh, civil disobedience and actions going on, actually starting today, ironically, where there's activists trying to shut down the Trans-Canada Highway until the province of BC changes its forestry practices and ends old growth logging up there. So this is becoming a really kind of spotted owl-like issue in British Columbia. It's time for a change, and the province of BC is dragging its heels as best as it possibly can to allow industry to keep cutting to the bitter end until... Finally, society up there says we're ready for something different. Yeah, very good. Certainly listening to you talk about those blockades makes me think of what happened here down in Mm. Washington State and also what's happening in Tasmania in Australia where they um, take some of the largest hardwood trees in the world and turn it into wood chips. Yeah, that's actually here as well. These old growth forests, the cedar is very valuable. That's in the western red cedar. But the primary associated tree with the western red cedar is, is uh, western hemlock. Yeah. And that tree is, has very little value economically, but the province requires that when um, timber companies log in most places that they take everything out so they can regenerate the forest as a tree plantation. The western hemlock actually typically goes to the pulp mill. So we're literally turning old growth forests in endangered species habitat into paper pulp today in one of the richest nations in the world. Paper pulp that becomes things like toilet paper products. Yes, exactly. It's just staggering. David, I was at the climbing gym in Lacey, Washington, just this past weekend, actually, and I was upstairs stretching and staring out the window, and I saw this big old fir tree about a quarter of a mile away suddenly just lean to one side and fall. You know, my first thought was, because we've had so much precipitation here in the past month, that the ground beneath it must have gotten soggy or something. But then another tree leaned and fell, and another. And then I saw this yellow clear-cutting machinery in the forest and thought, my God, this is how quickly we humans clear-cut these days. And did anybody think to remove the nesting owls and the raccoons and the squirrels? And I thought about how this is happening all over the world all at once, all the time, this crazy deforestation. Yet we've never needed trees so badly. They're home to so many species. They give us our air to breathe. They sequester carbon. You know all of this. And we Mm -hmm. know all of this, and still we do it. I mean, what do you think it's going to take to stop this utter madness? Is the answer blockades like you described? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. I often joke that, like, oh, we just need to change our economic model away from a capitalist, global capitalist extractive model of uh, economy, and then we'll be fine. So just a small change. Just like that, that little thing. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but honestly, I think the best examples of solutions that I've seen in this ecosystem happen on a local level. So one is uh, the community forest initiatives, which places the responsibility for forest management on like a locally owned 
nonprofit forestry practice, a community forest that's managing those forests for the benefit of the local community and with a strong emphasis on sustainability, protecting watersheds, protecting wildlife, and producing jobs locally, as opposed to the typical uh, industrial model of forestry, which goes on up there, which is all about producing profits for shareholders that don't live anywhere near the ecosystem and really basically treating forests like a, a mineral to be mined. Whereas the community forestry model looks at creating a sustainable system that will preserve watersheds, livelihoods, and wildlife in perpetuity. Hmm. So there's some really positive examples of that, which I think could be replicated on a larger scale that would you know, continue to um, provide probably more jobs than are being created right now by the industrial model. The other uh, example that I really look to for the future is actually the work going back to the West Moberly, Daniza, and the Soto First Nations who have basically forced the province of British Columbia and the nation of Canada to adopt a conservation strategy that's based on their traditional understanding and their traditional relationship uh, with caribou, which revolves around reciprocity and understanding that these animals cared for us and now it's our turn to care for them and pushing for and actually getting land management that protects critical habitat and puts resource extraction within the context of a sustainable population of caribou and recognizing these other benefits that you know ecosystem services that are a part of the landscape aside from just board feet of timber there are some examples but they all are going on on a local scale with local people taking responsibility for their place with an eye on not just profits for tomorrow, but livelihoods for many, many generations to come. And I think if we do that in every local scale, we'll change what's happening on a broader scale. Unfortunately, we're swimming uphill because there's such a strong pull for this global corporate capitalist model. So it's, it's an uphill battle for sure, but that I think is ultimately um, a big part of the solution. Right. And the possibility, therefore, of uh, all of these local um, communities and models to somehow stitch together a, a greater habitat. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think as you have one success story, you know, other people look to that to replicate it, which is, of course, what the powers that be fear quite a bit is once people realize there are alternatives uh, and that there are jobs to be had in a way that doesn't require an industrial model of resource extraction. Uh, this is something that's very scary for people that make their money off of the work of other people extracting and destroying their own backyards. Yeah, very short-sighted kind of extraction for sure. Mm -hmm. David, uh, you're also a climber with a, an impressive <laughs> record of ascents in the Cascades and you're an outdoors educator. What kind of skills do you like to teach young people? Well, it's been a while since I've worked with young folks. At this point, I do all adult education. Okay. Yep. I cut my teeth in the outdoors in part as a mountaineering instructor for Outward Bound, doing you know, various natural history seminars and things like that. Loved all of that. And at this point, though, all of my educational work revolves around kind of a professional level of training and wildlife tracking in particular. Fantastic. Someone who knows you well asked me to ask you <laughs> about the time a student announced that the day's itinerary would be all downhill through open meadows 
It sounds like there's a story in there. Would you care to share it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and this is actually, it's all downhill through Meadows from here is a joke that me and several of my colleagues have carried with us since then, just because I think it speaks to the rosy color, you know, the rose tinted glasses that humans have a tendency to wear. And I feel like as an educator in the outdoors, one of the best things we can do is help people take off those glasses and just see the world as it really is and face the challenges that we have head on rather than trying to hide from them because ultimately we can't. In that particular instance, uh, I was working with an outbound crew, mountaineering students that had been through, it was like a 22-day course. And the first two weeks or so had been training. So they've been learning navigation skills and safe travel skills in the mountains. And then at the end of it is what we call finals, which is their final test. And they had been given an assignment to get from where they were to another place on the landscape that was going to involve several days of travel. <laughs> and the navigators had looked at all the maps and discussed everything. And, you know, as an instructor, I had looked over their shoulders and said, yeah, they, they're not going to kill themselves doing this. They're on the right track. And then inexplicably, after the navigators put together their travel plan, they turned around and announced to the rest of the group that it would be all downhill through meadows to camp from here, which was most definitely not true. <laughs> and we walked through about a quarter of a mile of beautiful alpine meadows and then descended into some heinous bushwhacking and cross-country <laughs> travel and climbing back up through you know stream drainages, eventually getting to a trail and having to hike miles uphill to their next camp. Which we followed along, you know, as instructor, you just kind of follow along and, and watch. And the students that were told it was all downhill through Meadows uh, were quite disturbed to realize that that wasn't the case at all. And, <laughs> and uh, we always want it to be all downhill through Meadows in life. But uh, the reality of it is that's not typically how it works. You got to enjoy the, uh, the sweet moments and embrace the challenge is something I often think about in my own work and the work I do with others. Yeah, and it's a great story. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely my experience when I'm outdoors in the mountains is it's a heck of a lot of work with a lot of challenges for a few minutes of, oh, that's amazing. Exactly. And then on you go to the next set of challenges. So yeah, um, mm -hmm. that's a great story. So what's the current or next body of work that you're focused on regarding wildlife conservation? Yeah, I'm working on a project on uh, wolverines in the North Cascades right now, the Cascades Wolverine Project. Wolverines are another one of those indicator species and, you know, different in many ways than caribou, but another animal intricately connected to the alpine environment, adapted to landscapes, in this case, that have a huge amount of snow. And so obviously there's challenges popping up there with climate change and increased winter recreational use of the mountains. So mm -hmm. I'm working on a project there, actually trying to recruit backcountry recreationalists as community scientists to help us understand more about wolverines in the North Cascades. And then photographically, uh, my biggest project right now is documenting the Columbia River watershed. So I'm working with Braided River, which is the same publisher that I did the caribou book with to create a image of the contemporary Columbia River watershed, which is a landscape about the size of France. Uh, actually. Yeah, I was just I was so, like, that is one ambitious project to document the Columbia watershed. Exactly. Well, that's another project looking at the, you know, geology, geography, the biology, and then the cultural aspects of this river, um, which actually there's a big uh, 
treaty renegotiation going on between Canada and the United States that will dictate a lot of stuff about river management that's happening. So this is a timely project because of that. And then also a lot of push to change how we're being in relationship to that river in terms of hydropower and water management in general to really do right uh, by the salmon and many other species that depend on the river. Yeah, the salmon that so many um, other species need to eat. Uh, We've covered Mm -hmm. quite a bit in our podcast about that. So what is the intent with that project that you're working on? Is that going to be another book or is that more of an academic exercise? It'll be a book and then associated other materials. You know, we're hoping to have an interactive online platform for the project so folks can kind of virtually explore the river ecosystem and learn about the people and wildlife and places on it in that way. Similar to the Caribou Rainforest Project, going to integrate the content we create uh, with other ongoing conservation and educational programs. So there's all sorts of great organizations and groups that are are doing important work throughout the watershed. And so we're going to help create content that supports their ongoing conservation and education campaigns as well. Fantastic. So you'll see photos and material from that popping up all over the place and stuff related to the river. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for everything you do to conserve and preserve species, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. And stay safe out there. Yeah, thanks so much. Good to chat with you. And yeah, thanks again. Okay, thank you, David. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.